Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. So at Mercy Commons, we believe that um, the majority of the diet as uh, people are fed through the pulpit comes through elders. But then there are times when non-elders will preach, and that's because they are specifically gifted to do so. Um, and so we've had men and women preach at different times that are not elders. This morning, um, Karen is going to teach out of Galatians. Um, we as elders have asked her to do this and believe that it will be beneficial, not because she's my wife. Um, it'll be beneficial for me sitting there thinking, yeah, she's pretty good. You know? And pretty hot. So. Hurry up. <laughs> okay. Oh, I'm taking her time. Okay. She's like, move, I need this time. Father, I want to thank you for the power of your word. Um, I want to thank you that it is sharper than a two-edged sword separating soul from spirit. And I want to pray, Father God, for just a sharpness as Karen declares the truth of your word. I want to thank you that we don't rely on her, but we rely on your spirit as she speaks and your spirit as we listen. Uh, Father, we want to posture ourselves um, in a posture of receptivity. Spirit of God, speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. It really is a delight to be with you this morning. As Nick said, we're continuing in our Galatians series, um, the, scandalous, the scandalous story of Galatians, where Paul just, you know, really upends everything that, that we know about following Jesus. And the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the scandal of the, what the gospel is, why the gospel is so scandalous, why Paul was a scandalous choice. Um, and Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians. It's a really um, terse letter. <laughs> um, he, the Galatians are being beguiled. They're being bewitched and confused and led astray, and they're beginning to believe a different gospel. And so Paul is writing to them. We're going to continue reading in chapter 2, verse 11 to 21, and I'm reading out of the ESV today. But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men from James came, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It's quite a lot <laughs> in those couple of verses there. Um, so we're going we're gonna to look at some of it. So just kind of by way of recap, Nick last week had maps. I do not, but, you know, it's okay. <laughs> just picture them in your head. So Peter um, was traveling around at this stage. He's, he's going to visitors, I mean, to visit believers. He's strengthening them and he's encouraging them. He's seeing people healed and raised from the dead and come to faith. And you know the things that you normally see happening around you. Um, so Peter's traveling, and he's itinerant, and he's being effective. And at one point, he stops in a city called Joppa. And while he's in Joppa, he's praying, and he has this vision where God sends down this sheet. The sheet opens out of heaven, and there's all kinds of animals on the sheet that are kind of unclean um, for Jewish uh, kosher dietary laws. And God says to him, you know, arise and eat. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. I have kept the Jewish law. I have, you know, maintained um, kosher diet. I've done all the things. And three times this happens. And God says to him, Peter, don't call unclean what I have called clean. And suddenly he, you know, he's like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. And while he's pondering this, there's a knock at the door. And there's three men that have come to fetch him. Because while Peter has been having this vision, over here in Caesarea, there's been a Roman soldier, a guy called Cornelius, who's a righteous man. He's been crying out to God and saying, God, show me more of who you are. And God, an angel comes to Cornelius and says, send some of your people. I don't know what Roman officers have. Send some of your people <laughs> to go and fetch um, this guy called Peter, and he will help you. So these guys have come to fetch Peter, and Peter's like, oh, actually I can go with you now because God has just told me that I can go into the home of a Gentile where he would never have been able to do that before. He, Gentiles and Jews were not permitted to mix. And he says, oh, God has just told me that he shows no favoritism and that he accepts anyone who believes in Jesus. So he goes with these guys, preaches to the Gentiles, and while he's preaching to them, the Holy Spirit falls on them. And Peter's like, wow, this, I mean, God has really accepted and, and welcomed them in. So he has them baptized as fellow believers, saying, I, you know, I can't put, hold at arm's length who God has drawn in. But then he goes back to Jerusalem and he comes under criticism from some of the Jews who are saying, uh, what are you doing? We don't eat with the Gentiles. And so Peter stops and he explains the story that I've just told you. Um, and he gives a defense for the inclusion of the Gospels. And in Acts 11 verse 18, it says, when they heard this, when they heard Peter's defense, they stopped objecting and began praising God. They said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. So the Jews in Jerusalem were like, oh yeah, 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 okay, we can see that. So this is kind of happening over here in, in Joppa and Caesarea and Jerusalem. And over here in Antioch, um, Paul and Barnabas are preaching and people are coming, Gentiles are coming to faith. And do you remember last week, uh, what's his name, Barnabas, <laughs> went up to Antioch to see what was going on, and then he was like, oh, I'm going to go fetch Saul, Saul, come back down, and then Saul came and, Saul, Paul came and worked with them, and then Barnabas and Paul, um, you know, worked together, and uh, 
So this is happening, but at some point, Peter goes up to Antioch, and while he's there, he's interacting, it's kind of this this unified, beautiful thing unfolding. But some guys from the circumcision party, basically people saying you have to be circumcised if you're really coming into faith, arrive and Peter missteps, he stumbles under their intimidation and he withdraws. And so Paul has this public and strong (laughs) confrontation with him. Um, Why? Well, because really his actions are undermining a core aspect of the gospel. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. And now we're going to look at it a little bit more in in detail. We're going to look at it through two main points. The first is we're going to look at the reprimand, and then we're going to look at the reminder. So Paul issues a reprimand, and then Paul reminds. So let's look at the reprimand, first of all. And as we've seen, you know, it opens with Paul recounting to the Galatians church this time when he had this kind of standoff with Peter. I'll be honest, this part literally makes me sweat. I'm like, are you kidding me right now? You had a public confrontation and you're writing about it? I'm like, oh, I want to get out the car and play no more. You know, literally, I can't. Um, It it (laughs) stresses me out. Look, there's very little chance that the Galatians hadn't already heard about this confrontation. If there's two great pillars in the faith having a moment together, you can bet word the tea has been spilt, right? It is out there. Everybody knows about it. And I am not comfortable in any way with conflict or confrontation. and I'm not alone. I just wanted to tell you at the women's prayer yesterday, it was, I don't know, the city of Fullerton has decided that you cannot reserve like the shelters in the park online. It has to be a first come, first serve, duke it out kind of a situation. And so we're trying to pray in the corner of here and there's two competing parties happening. People have stuck their signs on top of each other's and these Two guys are hashing it out over here. And I'm like, it's not just me. Michaela's sweating, Elle's shaking. Everybody's kind of, this has nothing to do with us. It's not going to affect us. We play no part in it. We're going to go have breakfast and never think about it. No, we didn't think about it again. But just the idea of being near a conflict is stressful. I always say the four worst words in the English language are, we need to talk. Four worst words. (laughs) Terrible, terrible, terrible. It stresses me, but here it is. In black and white, here's a confrontation. Um, But I do think it's worth noting that Paul is being courageous, but not cantankerous. He doesn't simply have his grumpy pants on. He's not just here saying, we should do it this way because this is the way I like to do it, or I'm not that flexible, you should yield to me. That's not what he's doing. When we look at Paul's writings, when we look at it over the the breadth of it, so much of what he's doing is saying, guys, live at peace with one another, be in unity, be in harmony, don't quarrel. He's the guy who said God's servants shouldn't quarrel with each other. He's the guy who said, I've become all things to all men so that I could win some to Christ. So so what is going on here? If he's saying don't quarrel, but he has this full-on public standoff against Peter, I'm like, ah, these two things don't make sense in my head. Well, 
what is going on is that this is not a gospel difference. This is a different gospel. And we've kind of talked about that a little bit before. It's not a different way of working out our gospel. What's creeping into the church at Antioch is a different gospel. It's also creeping in in Galatians. Now, the church of God is made up of different people, different cultures, ethnicities, backgrounds, um, preferences, classes, political affiliations. This is the realm in which we flex and bend and are gracious. This is where we bear with and live at peace and defer to and prefer. Because these are not our primary identities. These, these are things where we say, okay, he likes to do it that way, that's okay. That, that is where I'm going to be gracious. However, when it comes to an action or an attitude that adds to or alters the gospel, we have to contend. We have to make a stand. We have to make a firm stand. Wherever the gospel is preached, it will be attacked. This is not, not a new thing. For thousands of years, wherever the gospel has been preached, it will be attacked. And we have to be prepared to take a stand and defend it. Paul stood with Peter in Jerusalem for the gospel. But Paul was also willing to stand against Peter in Antioch for the gospel. The truth of the gospel is where we take our stand. You know, growing up in, in church in Africa, church looks different. You know, it goes for a very, very long time. <laughs> and singing happens differently. That's not neat, and people haven't necessarily planned it. Someone in the back starts a song, this one joins in, and then we sing that song for 10 minutes. You know, it's a different outworking of the gospel. That is where we yield and we flex and we defer. But in church in Africa, if something of like, well, we, can we also worship our ancestors alongside worshiping Jesus? Oh, no, no, no. Now it's not a gospel difference. It's a different gospel. And we have to take a stand. So just by an example of what the two different things are. The confrontation also had to be public because Peter was a leader and his actions were public. He was doing things out there for everyone to see. It is also good to note, though, that Sorry, Peter and Paul, they are just... Did anybody grow up singing the song, Two Little Dicky Birds Sitting on a Wall? <laughs> Peter and Paul, they just... If I said the wrong name, I'm sorry. <laughs> Paul speaks directly to Peter about Peter. He doesn't speak to Barnabas about what Peter is doing. He speaks to Peter about what Peter is doing. Um, again, it was a matter of doctrine, not preference. And this is the same issue that the Galatians are facing. So that's another reason why he's referencing it to them. So that's what's going on. Okay, so we get what's going on. But why is it such a big deal? Really, is it a big deal? Well, yes, because something beautiful is being established in Antioch right here. Antioch is this cosmopolitan city, and the early church is being established in here, and theology is being formed. There's much we learn about the church from Antioch. They understood things about deacons and prophecy and sending and receiving gospel workers and, and the uniting of the Gentile and Jewish believers is happening here in Antioch. So something beautiful is being formed. So it is a big deal because Peter's actions are bringing confusion and disunity and division in at the, at the foundation of the church. It's very important that this church is built on the fullness of the gospel, that its foundations are sure and straight. It's very important how this community is founded and what keeps it together. 
I'm not sure who said it, but somebody very clever said, there are three things you cannot trifle with. A little poison, a little sin, a little false doctrine. You can't trifle with a little of those, because you just, you know, when you're building a foundation, you get slightly off, and before you know it, you're in a whole different realm than where you're intended to be. So there can be no room for a little false doctrine or a false understanding of the gospel. What I do love, though, is that Peter, um, he has his own set of letters in the Bible. And a couple years later, he's writing to believers. And he's telling those believers how important it is to stay the course. He reminds them, when he's writing to them, he says, remember what our beloved brother Paul has written to you. Don't you love that? They had this moment that was tense. But gospel partnerships can stand gospel confrontations <laughs> and gospel moments for the good of the gospel. And he says, he writes to them, he says, remember what Paul wrote, and remember, yeah, Paul, remember um, to stay the course. In 2 Peter 3.17, he says, you already know these things, dear friends, so be on guard. Then you will not be carried away by the errors of these wicked people and lose your secure footing. Rather, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and Savior. All glory to him, both now and forever. Amen. So it's a big deal because something beautiful is being formed and established. It's also a big deal because others are being swept up along in this error. Uh, verse 13 tells us, And the rest of the Jews also joined him in this hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas got carried away with them in their hypocrisy. Even Barnabas, you can hear the pain in Paul's heart as he's writing that. If you remember from last week, Barnabas was no lightweight. Barnabas, Barnabas was legit. Um, he was the guy who they sent up to Antioch to see what was going on. He was the guy who said, no, actually, the grace of God is at work here. Acts 11.23 says this about him. When he, Barnabas, arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. So Barnabas, Barnabas is legit. And then he goes up to Tarshish to fetch Paul, the guy everyone was afraid and suspicious of, the one nobody really wanted to have anything to do with. Barnabas like, I'll go get him. I'm not afraid. Off he goes. He fetches him. And then he and Paul travel and work and pray and stand together as they preach the gospel because the Holy Spirit had set them apart to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So Barnabas is not a lightweight, but even he was being led astray. It's quite a sober thought to think that Peter, who in chapter 1 we hear is a pillar of the church, and Barnabas, a man strong in the faith, can stumble. So we need to be open, friends, to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We also need to be open to the gospel correction of our brothers and our partners. Um, I think it's important to note here, though, that Peter, at no point is there any indication that he is changing his mind on what the gospel is. He's not going back on what he believes in. He's not denying his faith. There's nothing that indicates that. It is really just that he slipped into behaviors which are different to what he believes. He's failing to work out the gospel that he believed in. You know, uh, Weasby says it's easy to sit back and think, oh, Peter... Tusk, tusk. But he says it's one thing for us to defend a doctrine in a church meeting. 
It's quite something else to put it into practice in everyday life. Now, suddenly, this is hitting a little bit closer to home, right? We're not just thinking, well, there's two church leaders, that's not me. Having it out about doctrine, that's not really my realm. No, 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 no. This is where most of us will sit. Not many of us are in a place where we're changing our mind about what we believe in. But most of us are in a place where what we believe and how we live don't necessarily match up. I think it's also interesting to note that fear is the driving force behind this. Verse 12 says, because before certain men came from James, they, he, they weren't necessarily representative of James, they just said we come from James. He was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. We've seen Peter struggle with fear before. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was sitting in a courtyard, and a servant girl comes out and says, hey, you, you belong to the Jesus. And he's like, no, 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 no. He denies it. He swears an oath, and he withdraws from the process. So we've seen Peter struggle with fear before. And I mean, I, I love this because just because we get saved doesn't mean that all the things that we struggle with go away automatically, but it means that God works with us through them. Um, we can be driven by fear so easily, and fear is so, so tricky, because fear can stand out boldly in the open, or it can lurk very quietly in the shadows, but it's there a lot. And I mean, let's be honest, Peter in his context was probably, his life was probably not being threatened by the Judaizers. In our context, our life is probably not being threatened. We are not the persecuted church in um, Orange County, but that doesn't mean that we aren't ridiculed or intimidated. Nobody wants to be mocked or marginalized or maligned. Nobody wants to make a mistake. These are the things that our bad dreams are made up of. We end up in situations where we've made a mistake and people are mocking us or people are excluding us or people are you know, laughing at us. These are very real fears that we live in, things that, that we are afraid of and we can, because of these fears, adjust our actions under the pressure of those that are vocal and intimidating. Those voices trouble us. They unsettle our minds and we can so easily adjust incorrectly. But again, when you look at the whole of the scripture, we see back to Peter's letters, like a decade or so later, Peter is writing to those believers and saying, don't be afraid. The same Peter here who is struggling with fear and made some bad decisions based out of fear is telling these believers, don't be afraid. In 1 Peter 3, verse 14, he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I love it. He's telling them, don't let your hearts be stirred up. Don't be troubled. They are trying to put fear in you. Don't be afraid of that. Be ready to give a defense, but be, do it with gentleness and respect. God in his kindness keeps working with us. He keeps bringing us to a place of freedom and healing. Fear is not the place where God wants us to live. He's a God who loved us and gave himself for us, and in his faithful kindness will walk us through to a place of freedom.
The other reason that it's a big deal is that the gospel is being distorted. Paul gets to the heart of it when he says they're not walking straight down the line of the gospel. The, the literal translation is they're not ortho walking with the gospel. Now you all know anybody who had braces and went to the orthodontist, ortho means straight, right? Jack? <laughs> so straight. So we're not walking straight in line with the gospel. Well, what does that tell us? That tells us that the gospel is the truth to which everything else aligns. This is not the thing that bends. This is the thing that holds steady and we align to it. We're constantly needing to bring our thoughts and our feelings and our actions into line with the gospel. And it's a continual realigning process. This is not a one and done, my friends. We live in a world and by default, we absorb its ideas and philosophies and thoughts, the things that it's yelling at us all the time. And we constantly have to take those things and readjust them to the line of the gospel. You know, teachers, when you start teaching, you have this grand and noble belief that you're going to teach children to read, and that might be challenging, and you're going to teach them to cooperate together, and that might be challenging. No, no. The biggest challenge you will ever have is moving children from point A to point B in a straight line. They, they cannot do it. It is impossible. Why? Because we're distracted, we get confused, we wonder, our hearts are prone to wonder. Walking in a straight line is not what we do naturally. And so we keep having to say, okay, where is it? It's the gospel plus nothing, it's the gospel minus nothing. So that's the end of his kind of reprimand. And then he reminds them. I, you know, I love that. He doesn't just say, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Now fix it. He lays out the truth of the gospel again. He just unpackages the gospel. And this helps us to do thing, two things. First of all, it gives us grace upon grace. When the gospel is laid out for us again, it speaks grace to us. When we see the beauty of Jesus and the magnificence of what he's done and, and how helpless we were and how gracious he was and how kind and, and just long-suffering and this plan that has been in place for all of eternity, it's just, it gives grace to us. So by grace, we realign our, our behavior, not out of guilt. I I. Me, I'm going to be honest, <laughs> I will often say, oh, that person could do with a little bit more shame and guilt. <laughs> they, they could do with a little bit of, you know. But shame and guilt do not produce long-term consequences. They may be effective in the short term, but they don't produce long-term consequences. And so by also presenting the, the gospel again, the second thing it does is it gets to the heart of the issue. It gets to the driving force that's behind, the thing that's motiva motivating it so that it's not just behavior modification. If the lie that we are believing is not addressed, it's just going to pop out somewhere else. You know, when my, um, my folks were still living in their um, condo, um, I was over the one day and um, I had my shoes off and I was just kind of walking along and I walked over here and I was like, well, that's weird. Why is this part of the floor so much hotter than that part of the floor? And I stood over here, no, no, this part's not hot. But this part is hot. Huh. Yeah, everyone who knows what just happened is like, oh my gosh. So I went home and said, Nick, is that a, like a big deal? Is that just a thing? And he's like, oh, it's a burst water pipe is what's happened. 
And so it was such a disaster. They had to pull up wooden floors and dig into like cement foundations. And, but in the process, I learned something that I didn't know before. So over here, you can push on the floorboards and water will ooze out. And oh yeah, yeah, there's water under the floor. But just because the water is popping out here doesn't mean that's where the leak is. The leak can be over here and the water has found an escape over here. So you don't immediately start digging where the water is. They have to do, fancy people have to do fancy things to find it. <laughs> but it's, it's the same thing, right? If we don't address the root issue, if we don't address the burst pipe, it's just going to leak out here, and then it's going to leak out here, and then it's going to leak out here. And so the gospel helps us to do the, look at the thing that's driving the behavior. Um, and, you know, the enemy planted a lie a very long time ago. In the garden, the enemy told us that God cannot be trusted, and God is withholding. And so those are often the lies that kind of just sit and will motivate our different behaviors. Um, and so we have to just kind of settle by the grace of God that he is good and gracious and glorious and great. Um, so the thing that's most important is the self-righteous attitude that's sitting under the wrongdoing. He could say, Peter, knock it off. Eat with the Gentiles. Peter could adjust that behavior. But there's something of self-righteousness that was still sitting here that's just going to pop up over here unless it's addressed. So why is self-righteousness so counter to the gospel? Well, it promotes pride and division. You know, I'm okay, I can do it, I can add my piece. It makes man big. We overestimate our abilities, and it makes God small. We have to reduce the concepts of righteousness and holiness to make them more attainable in our own right. It makes light of sin, it robs God of glory, it nullifies the grace of God, makes it like superfluous, like it's an, an optional extra. It makes the death of Christ to be in vain, or at very least incomplete. Thanks Jesus, nice try, let me just add in where you didn't get there all the way. When we say that out loud, we think, man, that's ridiculous, no one thinks like that. But actually, Sometimes there's little bits in our hearts, and we see it popping out. We're like, okay, that thing, Jesus, will you help me? Spurgeon says this, The idea of salvation by the merit of our own works is exceedingly insinuating. It does not matter how often it is refuted. It asserts itself again and again. And when it gains the least foothold, it soon makes great advances Hence, Paul, who was determined to show it no quarter, opposed everything that bore its likeness. He was determined not to permit the thin end of the wedge to be introduced into the church, for he knew well that willing hands would soon be driving it home. So anything that looks like self-righteousness is not the gospel. So then let's remind ourselves again, what is the gospel? as Paul's kind of unpacking it. Well, it could be said that the central message of Galatians is right here in 2.16. He says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. It's, our justification is through faith by grace. No one is justified by keeping the law, but by exclusively trusting in Jesus. These are so dense. These verses are so thick. We cannot 
pull them out right now. I'm going to pull out a few helpful reminders. But good news is we're just in the beginning of the letter. And the things that he's introducing now, we have time to unpack in the coming weeks. So don't be disappointed that we don't do a deep dive into all of these things right now. This is just a helpful reminder as we start. So justification. What, what is justification? Well, God accepts us. God accepts us and he makes us righteous, and that means we can enter into fellowship with God. It's the restoration of a relationship. Um, Packer says, he's, Packer's been my go-to guy on definitions. Um, he says, to justify in the Bible means to declare of a man on trial that he is not liable to any penalty, but is entitled to all the privileges due to those who've kept the law. Justifying is the act of a judge pronouncing the opposite sentence of condemnation, that of legal immunity. So it removes any hurdle or obstacle to why we can be in relationship with God. God says, you're, you're righteous. There's no problem. Come and be in relationship with me. We have the covenantal standing of being God's people. It's a gift of status and relationship. But it's through faith or by the faithfulness of Christ. The righteous are marked by their faith, not by the marks on their body. Um, Packer says, true faith, I love this, is an exclusive, wholehearted trust, a complete going out of one's entire, con going out of oneself to put entire confidence in God's mercy. We believe that Jesus is our savior and we need no one and nothing else. My wobbly faith, Michael Eaton says, is anchored to his steady and unchanging faithfulness. I don't have faith in my faith, but I have faith in his faithfulness. And then it's by grace. Packer says grace is the sum and the substance of the New Testament. It's God's undeserved favor, his unmerited love. It means kindness and graciousness. It's steadfast love and resolute loyalty. It's election love plus covenant love. It means that we play no part. We humbly come and accept entirely a gift from God that we did not deserve. We can't earn, and our works play no part in it. And Keller has a sobering reminder when he reminds us that Christ will do everything for you or nothing. We cannot combine merit and grace, which is some of what was creeping in here. Paul just unpacks the gospel. He says, I've died to the law of God. I've been crucified with Christ, and now Christ lives in me. God loves me and he gave himself for me. I'm as free from condemnation as if I had already faced judgment and was found to have paid my debt in full. I'm as loved by God as if I lived the life that Christ lived. The cross has literally changed the world. God loves me. God loves me and gave himself for me. God loves. If God loves, it's divine and perfect and complete and good and selfless and lacking nothing and immeasurable because it's God and God loves me. I am in Christ and Christ is in me. This is my core and primary identity, not my nationality, not my race, not my persuasions or affiliations. I am in Christ and Christ is in me. Band, you can come up. I'm just going to pray as they come up and maybe we're going to pray, sing a little bit, and just trust God that maybe the Holy Spirit can begin to help you see. Has fear crept in anywhere? Um, 
Maybe some of your actions are not in line with the, the gospel and the Holy Spirit is wanting to bring conviction. Or maybe there's an aspect about who God is or the nature of the gospel that you're struggling to believe that God can help you with this morning. So God, we thank you that you are good and gracious and glorious and great. Thank you that your gospel is good news and that it means we come into relationship with you. Thank you that you desire for us to live in freedom. You desire for us to live in wholeness. You desire for us to live in grace. Thank you, God, that you love us. You love us and you gave yourself for us. We are prone to wonder. And uh, when we wonder, we can put a lot of the energy and effort into, I've got to find my way back home. I've got to fix this. I've got to make sure I find God. Or we can stop where we are and we can say, God, you need to come rescue me because I'm wondering. I'm wondering from the truth. I'm wondering from what the gospel means in terms of human flourishing. And I think I've started to believe some anti-gospel thoughts. Mitch said to me, um, he just had a picture of um, a young child coming in and saying, but I've done this and God is just inviting him in. Saying, come and we'll fix this. And I just, uh, I want to invite us to go to the table as we continue to sing this song and to grab those elements and to just ask God this simple question. God, am I wondering? Am I wondering in terms of what I think about you? Am I wondering in terms of my behavior? Or am I in that place where I'm trying by self-righteousness to fix that and find my way? And I just need to stop and put my hand up and say, God, I, I confess I'm lost and I'm wondering and I need you to come and rescue me. So won't you go to the table at the back on the side? There's wine in the front here. Get the elements that represent true freedom, full grace and justification. Bring them back to your chair and we'll take that together. Would you stand with me, please? On the night Jesus was betrayed, there were two people at that dinner one would betray him and one would deny him. We heard a lot about the one who would deny him. I often think of Peter sitting with the Gentiles eating and then remembering maybe this moment where Jesus said, this is the new covenant. This is my body broken for you. It's an amazing thing how eating and drinking is so core to our liturgy and ritual as Christians, so intimate, so tactile. And as Jesus broke the bread, he said, this is my body broken for you, take and eat. And we do that in remembrance of him. He then took the cup 
And he said, this is the blood of a new covenant. And this cup that we hold in our hands represents the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The blood that gives us justification. The blood that gives us friendship with God. The penalty that was paid so that the power of sin could be broken in our lives. Let's drink with deep gratitude. We're going to continue to sing that song as we land. But I want to encourage you, especially in the area of wandering, in the area where maybe you feel like you've engaged in anti-gospel behaviors, whether that's what you're thinking or what you're doing, to just put your hand up and say, God, I've wandered, I'm lost. I need you to come find me. We would love to pray for you. We'll have men and women to my left, your right. For the rest of us, let's engage in this wonderful hymn that is all about what he's done for us and how we can stand with firm confidence in that reality. Just had this moment as, as Nick was sharing. Um, I just imagined myself as Peter. And in that moment where he's being reprimanded, that moment when he realizes what he's done is wrong, or maybe it's before, but the question that floods his mind is how did I get here again? Um, and I think all of us have been there. God, how did I get here again? I thought I was done with this. I thought that night when I betrayed Jesus, when I betrayed you, I thought I was done with that. How did I get here again? Um, and if there's anyone here that feels that, God, how did I get here again? Whether that's porn, how did, why, why did I do this again? Or maybe it's anger. God, why did I yell at my children again? Or maybe it's you lied again. Whatever it is, God wants to bring you back in. That child, that picture that Mitch had, that child, God says it's okay. I'm here. Walk with me. So if that's you, I would love to pray with you. Um, if the smallest thing, whatever comes to mind. God, why am I here again? Thank you, guys. We are landing. But I do want to encourage you, um, even though it may be a little awkward, um, that God can meet you in a fresh way. And if you feel like God is speaking to you, please don't leave without receiving prayer. Let's go out there remembering who our dad is, remembering to stick our hand up when we get lost. Let's go out there and be the church. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, Please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.